Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Ernest Hemingway had four wives, and the first three of them were all from St. Louis. Hemingway himself was perhaps a bit sheepish about that. He's quoted as saying, I think if one is perpetually doomed to marry people from St. Louis, it's best to marry them from the best families. Now, Gertrude Stein had a quick retort. She reportedly replied, any man who has married three women from St. Louis couldn't have learned much. Now, that St. Louis connection is nothing new, but it is the backdrop to one of the more unusual quarantine stories we've heard lately. That's the story of how Hemingway quarantined back in the 1920s. And joining us today to tell us about it is author Leslie M.M. Bloom. She is the author of Everybody Behaves Badly, the true story behind Hemingway's masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises. And that book covers this unique arrangement. So, Leslie, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So we've been talking a lot about unusual quarantine stories, and Hemingway's was absolutely a doozy. But before we get to the details, I just have to ask, why did he have to quarantine in the first place? Well, Hemingway, he wasn't specifically quarantined himself at first. What happened is that he and his wife and his son, um, Bumby, who was then a toddler, were all supposed to go down and stay um, with friends on the Riviera, Sarah and Gerald Murphy, who had this fabulous mansion on a a cliffside mansion. And Hadley and Bumby went down ahead while Hemingway went off to some bullfights in in Madrid. And when when they got there, the Murphys noticed while Bumby was out playing on their beach with their kids that he had this horrific, racking cough. Hmm. So they summoned their doctor, and lo and behold, it turns out to be whooping cough, which is highly contagious. And so they're basically banned from paradise, as it were. Um, Hadley at first doesn't know, know what to do. She's down um, you know, down in, on the coast. And then F. Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda Fitzgerald, of all people, come to the rescue. They had rented a small house, which they outgrew really quickly. And they, uh, they still had the lease. And they said, well, why don't you guys move in there for quarantine until, until Bumby is better? So Hadley and, um, Hadley and Bumby uh, took up residence there. And then Hemingway would, would come down later, but not, after, not until after another certain visitor Uh, alighted upon them. Ah, yes. And there's the juicy aspect that we're all looking forward to today. (laughs) But in in terms of whooping cough, so this is how they treated it back in the day. They wanted to to isolate people who had it and and keep them away from other people, much like we're doing today for COVID-19. Yeah, they're uh, yeah, Hadley and Bumby and their friends down there. They were, you know, social distancing pioneers, um, you know, because Hadley is, is down there stuck in this cottage. She did she did get her um, her nanny to come down from um, from Paris to help. So she wasn't, you know, just totally sequestered away in this little two bedroom cottage um, by herself. But um, anybody who wanted to visit them, it was the same thing. You couldn't you couldn't walk up to the front door if you were bringing them groceries or something like that. You, you would have to leave it at the front gate. Um, when they did have visitors come, they would stand on the far side of the gate um, uh, in the front yard and you know talk all the distance like we're doing right now. Wow, I, I had no idea that we were all modeling ourselves on the Hemingway family. Uh, I know is... we're all so chic. Who knew? <laughs> yes, it makes makes me feel better about my arrangements. Uh, mm. But Hadley, so Hadley was Ernest Hemingway's first wife. We know she was a, a nice girl from St. Louis. Uh, what else do we know about her? Hadley was six years Ernest Hemingway's senior, and she was this sort of voluptuous redhead and just the sweetest, kindest woman on the planet, literally did not have a mean bone in her body. And she lived 
for Hemingway. She lived for her husband. At this time, it's the 1920s, um, uh, early 1920s. She and Hemingway had materialized in Paris so he could pursue his writing career as a great revolutionary modern writer. Mm-hmm. Um, she had at her disposal a, a very modest um, trust fund, which kind of you know propelled them through um, through through times then. And he was really trying not to be a journalist at that point. And so he was trying to forego any journalism um, income. And so her modest trust fund uh, got them through, not in any style, but they were eating at least. Um, but uh, through a series of unfortunate events uh, propelled actually by Mr. Hemingway himself, the trust fund um, was uh, let's say dissipated um, Mm. and they were really left with no money whatsoever and that's around that time is when Mr. Hemingway again met a certain somebody who's about to come into this story. So he's very poor he has this this wife Uh, they have a young son he takes a mistress who was Pauline Pfeiffer? Well again another St. Louis lady so he definitely had a, a very particular kind of sweet tooth right um, Pauline and her sister um, Virginia were in Paris uh, at the time, also, and you know both Pauline and Hadley. You know they have certain things in common, basic things. They're both women. They're both from St. Louis, but that's pretty. And they both ultimately live to love Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's where the similarities end. Pauline is a career woman. Uh, she is a, a, an editor for Vogue, American Vogue, based in Paris. These, these women are working on deadline constantly. I mean, it was it was a big job. And, you know, Hemingway is a journalist also, so they have that in common. And poor Hadley, you know, she's she can't compete in that area at all. She doesn't have the vocabulary or the experience because she's she's a, a, a stay-at-home mom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Hadley, again, you know, she she bankrolled and ruled them modestly at the beginning, but, you know, Pauline's a proper heiress also. Mm. She comes from a, far- a pharmaceutical and a cosmetics family, very indulgent to, to the daughters of, and the nieces of the family. She is extremely well-dressed. She is shrewd. She knows what she wants and how to get it. And she was really a beautiful woman. Some of the pictures you have in this book, she's she's kind of breathtaking and also so stylish. Like she had the very short hair back in the 20s when I'm sure this meant she was a liberated woman. She just looked great. Yeah, she, she's pretty chic. I mean, I think it would be terrifying to be in the same room as her, you know, and, and very au courant also, you know. And so Hadley is the epitome of comfort. And, you know, Pauline is all angles and she has this shorn little Japanese doll hair and she's in the latest clothes. I mean, she's a very intimidating creature. But interestingly, her entree to the marriage originally was through Hadley. Uh, she was introduced through um, girlfriends of, of Hadley's and they became friends. And originally, Pauline was quite repelled by Hemingway. She thought that he was kind of a gruff he-man um, and, you know, really was quite appalled by the, the poverty in which Hemingway and Hadley were living. Um, but clearly something changed because uh, sooner or later she decided more than anything what she wanted in life was Hadley's husband. Hmm. You say it would have been terrifying to be in the same room with her. They all ended up in the same quarantine house together. <laughs> How did that come about? Yeah, lucky Hadley, right? Yeah. Um, so Hadley is down, and as you know, we'll, we'll rewind to the first part of our conversation. Hadley's in quarantine with Bumby, who's two, three or four years old right now. He's got whooping cough. Um, it's a two bedroom place. Uh, I mean, it's shelter, it's nothing more, right? Mm-hmm. It's unclear exactly. Um, how Pauline materialized there. Because by this, by the time the, the quarantine is happening, 
Pauline isn't a full-on love affair with Hemingway, a physical love affair. It's a really uncomfortable love triangle. Hadley knows about the affair. She's confronted Hemingway about it. He's enraged because he, he feels that Hadley should never have confronted him about it, that she was doing the wrong thing by bringing it out into the open and that everything would have just been fine if, if uh, you know, he had been able to, con- you know, continue his affair, you know, oh. sort of, you know, you know behind, behind the curtain, as it were. Um, but Hadley, you know, she's, she's kind of grappling at this point with what to do with this situation. Pauline is a fact, and she's a tenacious fact. She's not going away. Hemingway shows no signs of giving her up. But at the same time, she loves Hemingway, and she wants to keep him. So she doesn't know what to do. And so Pauline is, is tolerated in their life, but it's, you know, a really explosively uneasy situation. So Pauline had had whooping cough already. She had immunity. As we all know, that's, you know, the, the, the treasured immunity, mm-hmm. one of the great grand prizes of the moment. Um, and she, whether Hadley invited her or Hemingway dispatched her, Pauline, to help Hadley because of the immunity is unclear from historical records. Everybody tells a different story. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, is that Pauline materializes at this house to help Hadley out. So Hadley is now with her nanny, her sick kid, and um, and her husband's mistress. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't be that happy with this arrangement. Yeah, it sounds horrible. And I, I think you said this was a two-bedroom house. Yes. I, who knows what the what the sleeping arrangements were, but we do know for a fact that later on um, that uh, Pauline was not above getting into bed with Hadley and Hemingway, you know, would, would for breakfast and that kind of thing. So I, it's unknown how the space was divvied up. Then Hemingway himself materialized at the house. So all of them are, are dwelling together there for weeks on end. Um, and, you know, in the meanwhile, you know, the Fitzgeralds who are still down there on the Riviera and the Murphys, they all know what's going on and they think that this is quite outrageous. I mean, it's the closest thing they get to spectator sports. So they're bringing the Hemingways and Pauline supplies every day, whether it's roses and wine or, you know, vegetables from their gardens. But, you know, they're they're full of mischief about it, too. Their jaws are on the ground. And Zelda Fitzgerald would later say that it was great to have a front row to the Hemingways, quote, domestic difficulties. So they would all stand on the far side of the fence and, you know, they would have these impromptu cocktail parties, um, you know, a la distance with the Hemingways and Pauline on the front porch and, and just kind of everybody would just sort of watch this strange quarantine menage a trois with their jaws on the ground. I have to say, this does put all of our quarantine problems in perspective. This is one of those stories that <laughs> it makes you understand that maybe everything wasn't so much better back in the day. Uh, but in terms of the quarantine here, uh, this worked, right? No one else succumbed to the whooping cough? Yeah, apparently everybody else was okay, and they were there for, I believe, around three weeks. And then the whole um, the whole circus moved to a nearby hotel to get a little more breathing space. Bumby and the nanny are stashed in a little um, cottage on the hotel grounds, and now Pauline is really quite free to pursue her Hemingway campaign full bore. So she. Everything Hadley later said in her in her own memoir that everything after that point was done uh, a, a trois, uh, you know, for three. So if they, she and Hemingway were going to go on a bike ride, there was Pauline pedaling alongside them. Mm. Um, and so it was really, truly the end of the end of the, the Hadley and Hemingway marriage. So this quarantine really sort of uh, sped up or, or marked this point where from this point on, um, Hadley's chances were not looking good at all. 
No, poor Hadley. I would say I would definitely argue that it was last nail or among the last nails in the coffin of that marriage. So when did Hemingway finally leave Hadley or, or did Hadley leave Ernest Hemingway? I guess I shouldn't assume here. Well, they separated um, supposedly, you know, woundedly but amicably later that summer. That mm-hmm. that was it. Um, and you know, meanwhile, even after Pauline had gone back to Paris and the Hemingways were still um, together down on the Riviera, uh, they were followed by Pauline's insistent letters. And in one of the letters, she literally uses the phrase, "I'm going to get what I want." So, the marriage between Hadley and Hemingway it, it officially survived quarantine, but Pauline proved to be the fatal, the fatal final element. Hmm. Now, I got the sense reading uh, A Movable Feast, which was Hemingway's memoir that covered some of these years, that he really regretted leaving Hadley for Pauline. Do you think that's a, a fair takeaway? Uh, or was that some revisionist history on his part? Um, I mean, I think a lot of movable is revisionist history on his part. But I do I do believe that he was genuinely anguished about the way he had treated Hadley later on. Mm. And, I mean, you, you'd have to be a pretty soulless person to not feel some pang of remorse. I mean, she just really was the most genuine, loving, giving person you could could possibly meet. And the betrayal was so total. Um, you know, but there was also evidence that he was anguished even at the time he was, you know, trading up on her to, to Pauline. And, you know, at the time he was just about to publish The Sun also rises, which launched him into mega stardom. Mm. Um, and he dedicated that book. He, originally, it was dedicated to Bumby, and then he did dedicate it to Hadley, and he also gave her all the proceeds, uh, the royalties from that book, because, you know, really without her, she, he wouldn't have had the early writing career that enabled him to be able to write that book. So he did do at least one honorable thing um, for Hadley in the moment. So he behaved badly, but he seemed to have at least been aware of it. <laughs> Mm. Yeah, nobody nobody seemed to behave more badly than Ernest Hemingway that summer. So the big question about this quarantine, and we can't just focus on these salacious details. We also have to worry about American letters. How did it affect Hemingway's writing that he's here with his wife and his girlfriend and a child who's sick with whooping cough? Do we know if he got any writing done during that period of quarantine? Yeah, well, I mean, look, astonishingly enough, he later described it as a marvelous setting to write. That's amazing. So, uh, yeah, I mean, he's in revisions at that point on, you know, what remains one of the great novels of the 20th century and the novel that introduced modern literature to a wide stream, you know, to a mainstream audience. Um, Hemingway's the ultimate compartmentalizer. I mean, in, in, in so many different parts of this, this period of his life, um, it's like he can, when he is ready to write, he, he called himself, you know, a blind pig. Like he would just get down to it. He could probably write with bombs going off around him. He could write probably in a washing machine that was worrying around. It was the most astonishing thing I'd ever encountered. And also maybe aided by the fact that he had these women here to do the work of, of taking care of this household. There was several people attending to needs so he didn't have to. Oh, I mean, the whole entourage, I mean, he was the son around which the entire entourage swirled, right? I mean, he's got a nanny taking care of the kid, you know, a loving wife and a, you know, very shrewd mistress all competing for his affections in that moment. Not to mention, you know, the Murphys are feeling terribly guilty about having kicked them out in the first place. And they're sending, you know, uh, um, vegetables, fruits, wine, roses. I mean, and, you know, the Fitzgeralds are coming over bringing, you know, bottles of, like, you know, libations for everybody. I mean, it's not a terrible setup. I don't know about you, but nobody is bringing wine and roses to my house right now. And I, I almost feel like I can see what might be 
weirdly enviable about his setup. Yeah, I'm with you there. It does seem like uh, this quarantine went better for him than it's going for us. Uh, at the same <laughs> time, though, I mean, this whole setup, it just seems so ripe for a sitcom or a humorous piece of writing. And I, I know we don't associate Ernest Hemingway with doing these, you know, comedic uh, bits. But are you surprised he never used this setup directly, at least that I'm aware of, in a novel or in a short story? Um, well, I mean, I would say that he's probably not at his best when it comes to parody, which is something else he learned around this period of time. Um, I think his attention was just, you know, in, in a different direction in the moment. I mean, he really was concentrating very strongly on the sun also rises. And I mean, he was about to become who he had wanted to become his entire life. Mm. He always had a very clear vision of who he wanted to be and uh, what hallowed place he wanted to occupy in the literary landscape. And he was about to get it. Um, I will say, you know, look, I mean, it's it, even though he didn't write about it, you know, I got to. And other biographers have, you know, documented it also. And um, so he didn't pick up on the story for, uh, to, you know, to disseminate it in a short story, but we got to write about it in our biographies, and I'm so glad we did. And I'm so glad you did, too. It, it is such a great story. And again, that book is Everybody Behaves Badly. It's the true story behind Hemingway's masterpiece, The Sun Also Rises. And Leslie, I'd be remiss if I would let you go without just one last question, and that is you have a new book coming out soon. And this book also sounds amazing. Can you just give us just a little foreshadowing of, of what you're working on or what you've recently finished? Uh, well, thank you for that. Um, it's a very different book than what I'm up to, with, what I was up to with Everybody Behaves Badly. My new book, which comes out in August, is called Fallout, the Hiroshima cover-up and the reporter who revealed it to the world. And it is about American World War II journalist John Hersey. And after World War II, there was a U.S. government cover-up about the true nuclear after-effects in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And for an entire year, the cover-up was successful. That is, until John Hersey got in to Japan and managed to report the truth to the world. Wow, that just gave me the chills. And as you say, huge change of pace from this other book. But man, I mean, they both just sound like incredible reads. So you've got some good topics there. Thank you. Well, Leslie M.M. Bloom, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. I couldn't be happier to be here. Thanks again. And for the record, Hadley went to the Mary Institute, Pauline went to Visitation Academy, and Martha Gellhorn, who is Hemingway's third wife and the most famous wife, she went to the Burroughs School. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.